previously on annuals. It was it as though there was money just growing on trees. And they were, they were picking the eyes out of it, and Tommy and Bart. It was a frenzied sale. They were all sort of too familiar with everybody, and everyone just assumed that you know, they all knew that these things would happen. I looked at him, he looked at me, and we, we, we determined there was something funny about the market. The 30th of June wasn't fulfilled, and the uh, syndicates collapsed. Late 1989, the decade is coming to a close. Bob Hawke, a racing fan and beer sculler extraordinaire, is Prime Minister. Home and away has graced screens for less than two years. Scott and Charlene have been married for longer. Paul Hogan is two crocodile dundees down and the country has just spent a year celebrating what we now know was a problematic bicentenary. A bloodstock boom has come and is in the process of going so quickly that many have been bowled over in the tailwind. It was uh, an eerie time. Um, we'd gone through a, a period of record sales. This is Tony Bott. Shielded by some tax-driven schemes, etc. And then these schemes didn't come to fruition and Inglis were left with um, a number of unpaid for horses and, of course, that resulted in this sale. Um, so everyone was sort of very um, uh, apprehensive as to what may happen. Um, could the market um, uh, absorb these high-priced yearlings, uh, and, uh, et cetera? Um, uh, so uh, we were certainly going into uncharted territory. The navigation of that territory was particularly troubling for one man, Bart Cummings. As most people would know, Gus, you know, the... Inglises and the other sales companies, we pay out on 42 days. So, you know, no matter if we're paid or not, we had to find the money to pay the vendors. This is Jonathan Darcy of Inglis. Which we did. We went to our banks and we paid all the vendors. Uh, but that left us, you know, owing a lot of money to the bank and the bank looking on saying, well, you've got all these yearlings, what are you going to do with them? So the Night of the Stars concept was was launched and uh, rights and bloodstock and Inglis combined. We were owed a lot of money, uh, the two companies. And so we took um, we took the horses back from, from Bart, had them prepared for the sale, and the sale was held, as you say, in September. And look, Bart knew that this had to happen. While he wasn't happy about it, he knew that the writing was on the wall. You know, there's no way in the world he could have found $20 million to, you know, to pay the two sales companies, and so that's how it played out. From the TDN Australia and New Zealand, this is Annuals. Season 1989-90, The Night of the Stars. September 15, 1989. Newmarket, Sydney. An extraordinary sale for extraordinary times. Bart Cummings, for almost three decades one of the most recognisable faces in the sport, had failed to achieve the 80% acceptance rate for his Cups King Syndicate, and was left holding more than $17 million worth of horse flesh. His rival, Tommy Smith, had also faced financial difficulty after spending a fortune on yearlings, but, with the help of his daughter, Gay Waterhouse, had found somebody to take on the expense. Bart hadn't been so lucky. Inglis was owed more than $12 million. Wrightson's bloodstock from New Zealand was owed almost five. Dalgetty Bloodstock International even had some pain to the tune of half a million. 
they needed to be paid or they themselves faced insolvency. I think English was very close to, to going under. Um, yeah, they certainly would have had to have sold property. Now they owned the Camden sale yards, but this is before we bought um, the Dalgetty business in Melbourne, so I couldn't get around and sell that. So there weren't a lot of assets to liquidate. So basically it was, you know, we owned the sale yard at, at Newmarket and um, you couldn't really sell it. Um, if you sold it for, for the land, of course, as, as we've done since, uh, you had to go and rebuild. So I think, you know, I think it's not unfair to say we were very, very close. If, if certainly if, if Reg and the board, you know, John Inglis hadn't found um, a new bank to take over that debt, I think, you know, Inglis would have had to have folded. And so the Night of the Stars came into being, an auction that would be conducted jointly by Inglis and Wrightson's in a show of bipartisanship. It's hard to say. You probably you could see Wrightson, uh, well, uh, as it's not that New Zealand bloodstock now, days. Um, I suppose that uh, Wrightson's, you know, were a, a long-standing company just like Inglis and maybe they'd had a, a working relationship over a number of years and maybe not as competitive as it is now, let's say, between Magic Millions and Inglis. I mean, I can't see them sort of uh, coming together uh, uh, in the near future. Um, maybe NZ Bloodstock would uh, because they're not as much direct competitors. But uh, certainly I think it was desperation that they had to work together. Certainly I think we were we were thrown in together. It just worked. Um, the majority of horses were obviously back here in Australia, so it would have been hard for, for Wrightsons to fly the horses back to New Zealand to hold the sale over there. And it was just, you know, it made sense to um, you know, gather the horses together and hold the sale. But, I mean, you've got to remember that uh, Inglis, when, when Magic Beans went into receivership, Inglis has actually went up and ran the sale for a couple of years. So it, it wasn't without, you know, I mean, we, we, uh, we try and help each other as, as best we can. Um, certainly, you know, to, to this day, we talk about sales dates and trying to plan the calendar together with uh, New Zealand Bloodstock and Magic Beans. So, look, while it's, it's a very competitive marketplace, when you know, where it, there is, I think there's respect for the three sales companies between, you know, the three of us. And we, we do try and help each other on these sort of things. I mean, things like conditions of sale, you know, we, we try and make sure that we're looking after our clients as best we can. Well, at the time I was living in Sydney. This is Joe Walls. I was working uh, for the company in Sydney for, and I worked there for two and a half, three years. And yes, we had to uh, accumulate the horses and the Night of the Stars, uh, we said to English who had um, agreed to run the sale at, at their complex, we said, well, you know, we're involved too. Um, we've got a, a fair bit at stake. We'd like to be involved and try to get what we could for these horses because it's, it's good for our pocket. So they agreed to that. And, and I was the one from our company who stood up and sold the, the rights and horses, if you like. Um, at that time. I do remember the night, Gus, that um, I remember sort of the, the, the two leading days, lead-in days, a lot of people who had come out from the city, a lot of people dressed in suits, um, thinking, you know, there was blood in the water, that, you know, these horses were going to make a lot less than what um, Bart had originally paid for them. Um, circumstances had changed a lot. The economy was in a, in a, in a steep decline. So all the horses had come back to England uh, back to Inglis's. Some had been broken in. The majority had been broken in, but some hadn't. So they were announced as, as handled lead only. And so it, it uh, played out. You know, the horses had originally been sold for 19 million, 19 million and, and, and 600,000. 
uh, an average 293,000. That's the 67 lots that Barton bought. And they got resold that night for 11.8. Uh, and so there was a, you know, there was a fairly big shortfall there. Um, and as, um, history will tell you, Inglis had to, had to hold that. Um, we didn't get much out of Bart for the, uh, the, the next few years, there was an agreement in place that we would get a percentage of his training and his uh, prize money earnings, but it didn't amount to much. You know, probably the best horse to come out of the sale, Gus, was a horse called Pharaoh, won a couple of Doncasters. Um, now, he cost 550000 at the, um, the New Zealand sales that year. Uh, the expectation was, with most of these horses, the expectation was that maybe they'd make around half. Uh, anyway, he went through and made 75000 uh, And ironically, he was bought by Tommy Smith, who for the preceding five or six months had fought his own battle. You know, um, Tommy had a very similar debt to the sales companies and it was his daughter, Gabe, who went over to America and found an American millionaire called John Kluge, who, um, and she convinced to invest in Australian bloodstock, invest in the stable. And For more on Tullock Lodge and Kluge, check out our previous episode. Uh, Tommy was able to pay the sales companies. He, um, he didn't have his horses taken off him. So he turned up full of uh, full of TJ Smith bravado and he bought a couple of horses that night and Pharaoh being the best of them. They say knowledge is power and that the difference between something good and something great is attention to detail. Plus Vital provides state-of-the-art genetic testing for the thoroughbred industry used around the world to help make better informed racing and breeding decisions. With top trainers including Danny O'Brien, Malua Racing, Lindsay Park, Kieran Ma, Archie Alexander, Matthew Smith and Jason Warren, all finding the benefit of plus vital genetic testing and where the smallest margins matter. Can you afford not to know? To find out more, email us at info at plusvital.com. It was a sad sale in many ways because the, the, the Cummings family were all there and, and uh, Bart, who I had a lot to do with over the years, it was sad to see Bart in that position, regardless of for whatever reason. Um, and he had his whole family there supporting him. And, and I really did try to get as much as we could because it meant a lot. And in the end, of course, we missed by uh, getting the money that was outlaid by Bart. Uh, so it was one of those turning points, I guess, in Bart's career. And it was quite a traumatic night. Bart was there. I don't understand how he kept his composure, but he did. Duncan Ramage. They put the Kiwi horses, the horses of the board in New Zealand went through first. And then the Aussie horses, and in fact, the New Zealanders were going to come across and help support their horses. Well, uh, somehow or other, they were late. The plane was delayed was the excuse. Kiwis were late turning up. So the New Zealand horses went through at a hatchet price, and definitely there was a there was a far sale feel to it by then, and the Australian horses, um, they went through, you know, third quarter of their value. Horses like Pharaoh came out of it, I think. Bart bought Pharaoh for, I can't remember the figure. It was about half a million. Yeah, with a lot of money in those days. Gay's, Gay's owner, uh, he ended up owning Pharaoh for two cents of the price and, and won two Doncasters. They dubbed it the Lord of the Scars. This is John Massara. And it was a sad, it was a sad day, I have to say. Because no one wants to see 
uh, a sort of people lose like that, you know, whoever it was going to be, whether it was going to be Inglises or it was going to be uh, Bart, whoever it was going to be. Anthony Cummings was foreman for his father at the time. But it's a funny feeling. I mean, it's sort of, you know, things you did put a lot of work in. So I would also have broken in and, and we should have had a chance to see some of them. Um, the others had just been given time because that's what they needed. And so we didn't know as much about some of those. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty strange feeling. And, and the, the goal all there, to the old man, uh, uh, was trying to get the uh, the sale companies to sort of sit and wait and really work it out. Um, but I think the numbers were too great for that to happen for them, you know, to, to their, for their own welfare. Like they'd already paid out uh, all those yearlings. And, uh, you know, they had a, um, you know, put their uh, livelihood in there and survival at risk as well. Uh, and so as much as we were trying to look after our side of things and then now, um, you know, they, they too had uh, to look after the tool. So, um, you know, it was a difficult situation for everybody, but at the end of the day, um, it happened. David Hay's father, Colin, was the other face on a three-headed Mount Rushmore of Australian trainers. But unlike Tommy and Bart, he hadn't been caught up in the public company and partnership issues that they had. Dad liked the concept and it didn't make a lot of sense, but it was incredible with those sales. It could now be Bart or Tommy and we just didn't get involved. And um, thankfully Dad didn't. I remember going to that sale. It's incredible, these fantastic horses. I think it was pretty bad for Bart. Um, I was lucky enough to inherit probably the most successful one out of that actually Philly called Wraparound, who won a William Reed and was very competitive behind Scalati. But uh, we were lucky enough to get a good horse out of that, and I was, just, uh, I was a bit too young in those days to be involved in those big deals, but thank God, um, for Lindsay Park's sake, Dad didn't, he avoided the temptation of the of the vast duck. I'm not sure how many good one horses that came out of it, but there were a few. Uh, and, you know, Pharaoh, uh, he, he uh, came out, out through there, Rabaran came out through there, uh, with the, the, or at least a couple. Uh, and, you know, uh, but Pharaoh was probably the standout horse to go through that sale. I can remember the original, I remember Pharaoh going through New Zealand and the, um, uh, his beautiful yearling. This is John Peatfield. Um, I think I was betting there for Tommy, um, and then again at the night of the stars, I, I, I'm sure I would have looked at him. So, but he was one of the very few that that um, that, that was any good. See, and, and, and much the same applied to the to the Talek Lodge yearlings because both the night of the stars yearlings and the ones purchased by Talek Lodge that year, but they couldn't be trained. They were sitting in spelling paddocks, getting fat and soft. Ah, oh. uh, right. Right through to September, um, there were, you know, it was it was a normal uh, cream of the crop that were purchased between Tommy and Bart, and nothing much came out of it, by Pharaoh. So, you know, it ended up um, a very expensive uh, and then devalued group of horses that, um, because they couldn't be trained um, in that critical two-year-old period. Uh, it didn't amount to much. For what they cost, that they were a spectacularly unsuccessful group. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, they transferred from various different holding patterns and then through to various different traders. So they didn't stay in the bath system. So yes, uh, Peatfield's probably hit it on the nail that 
that, that, that those horses suffered through through not lack of foundation and over the gradual progression that they would otherwise have had in the, in the systems, particularly the cults, which made up the bulk of the value. You know, you can't, you, you've got to keep on top of cults and, and condition them uh, right through from um, when they're purchased to, uh, to when they start racing seriously and, and, and they are just going to feed and, you know, mentally and physically it's just completely detrimental. By way of comparison, Group 1 winning two-year-olds of that season, Triskay, Mahasan and Kenny Ladd, were in full work while the sale was conducted, and all three made winning debuts within 25 days of the Night of the Stars. There was just no chance that Pharaoh or the Biscay Colt out of Tomasina Fiesco, which Bart had paid $1.5 million for at Easter, and then was knocked down to Guam-based billionaire Ken Jones for a Night of the Stars topping three-quarters of a million, could compete with that, even if he had the ability. As an aside, that colt was named Ken's Regards. He won four races, earning less than 40 grand. He stood eight seasons at stud, never for an advertised fee higher than $1,250. He got 55 foals, 25 made the races, 11 won. His total career progeny earnings were a tick over $212,000. Two and a half years after the Night of the Stars, Ken's Regards half-sister, Reva Diva, won the Blue Diamond Stakes. Her trainer? Bart Cummings. Ken's Regards and Reva Diva were bred by David Haynes. Haynes was famed as the breeder of Horses of the Year Kingston Town and Rose of Kingston, and it was the latter's son by American Triple Crown winner Secretariat, Kingston Rule, that would play a key part in the resurrection of J.B. Cummings. But that was in the future. At the time of the Night of the Stars, Kingston Rule was between trainers. He had been an abject failure in one start for Tommy Smith and was destined for Bart's Melbourne stable. Bart's Sydney stable was striking rare form. So you had the surreal juxtaposition of a horse trader on the brink of oblivion and a horse trainer on the brink of his first Sydney trainers premiership. There was a bit of a change in the guard at that time, obviously enough. You know, we, we did, uh, I think we won the premiership only won 60 or 70 races, something like that. Yeah. So it's pretty, still a pretty good number, uh, but it was at a time where there's a fair bit of disruption and there were court cases flying around. So uh, the old man had to do the court case thing, so I just uh, looked out for the stable, uh, and um, that was sort of pretty much the way it went. Yeah, I went on, the time Pat was on the back so much as to say that's what it was. I mean, so there was a, there was a, a line drawn about who was doing what, uh, and so... I had to look after the horses and keep the saddle riding and make that work. Uh, he, had to, he had these obligations in terms of turning out court, court and dealing with all those things, the people and whatever. Uh, and so um, I was thankful about the, the the play in stables around the place with Nathan Smith out of the picture and, uh, and various other people out of it and uh, the changeover between Tommy and Gay and the rest of it. It just lets an opportunity for um, a place of our size, which, you know, we and, you know, I think 50, you know, about 60 boxes at the time, still about the same here now. Uh, so in terms of numbers of horses at work, we probably have the smallest team of any trainer in Sydney or, or the majors in Sydney anyway, um, and, uh, and still managing it over the line. In winning the Premiership, Cummings became the first trainer to have won Metropolitan titles in South Australia, Victoria and New South Wales. He also underwent a knee operation during the season. 
it was a roller coaster year. One of the stars of season 89-90 for Leilani Lodge was a beautiful grey filly, Tristana. Yeah, Tristan, she was fantastic. Um, well, she was the, um, in the syndicate from the year before. Uh, and the um, and I think there were a couple of years when, when the syndicates actually worked quite well. Um, Tristan and I came out of the second one uh, and, you know, she made a mark, you know, and won the Oaks. Uh, and, um, yeah, it, it, you know, there was a, some depth to the place at that time. Uh, Gold Trump was a thing that I horse that I raced for, or Burma, my wife raced with a few mates, and uh, he won the Newmarket as well in that time. So it was, um, it was, yeah, it was the whole thing was a bit of fun. Interstellar, Tristana, uh, Close. Bozan was a private sale, but there was a forerunner syndicate from which the syndicate that collapsed was, was based upon. Um, and yeah, again, that tremendous kudos to Bart and Anthony was foreman at the time, but they really knuckled down and got these horses going and didn't lose. Many a man would have collapsed in a heap. Um, Bart saw this as a, as a driver to, to keep going. Um, in the back room there, he had a, a lady called Nita Marish, who's now my secretary. She's in her seventies now, and she kept. She kept the finances in order and Bart traveling around the country and, and what have you. Um, so, well, a lot of behind the scenes grit shown to, to, to get those horses perform as they did. Tristana had to be sold under the terms of her syndication. The money didn't hurt either. More surprising was the sale of 1988 Horse of the Year and champion three-year-old Bozan for stud duties in Japan. We had hoped to be able to sell it to it and, and had a, um, a soul was just about done for it to go to Barrowall. Uh, and then uh, there were there was some uh, difficult conversations had between Jack Eastgate uh, and uh, the old man and Sir Tristan and whatever, and that just didn't eventually. Uh, and eventually uh, the, the, the deal was done with the guys in Japan, but uh, it was unfortunate, I suppose, that he didn't come here, but... Never stand here, but I suppose as it turned out, you know, for whatever reason, he didn't make it as a stallion, despite the, the, the performances, despite the depth of pedigree. Whether Bozam could have been a success had he been supported down under is up for debate. The fact that a black son of Halo named Sunday Silence arrived in the land of the rising sun at around the same time can't have helped matters. Bozam's own sire was the regally bred Zamazan. The chestnut son of Exbury had been one of the best sires in Australasia for many years, and since his retirement to start at Carlisle Stud in New Zealand in 1970, had produced not only Bozam, but Veloso, Lord Reams, Fizam, and many others. He was the champion sire on both sides of the Tasman, and would go on to be the broodmare sire of Doremus and Circles of Gold, probably the best conduit of his blood to the world. In April 1990, at 25, Zamazan died. Yeah, whenever we've lost horses, and I suppose there are there are exceptions in the case of Zabil and Sir Tristram, they were they reached a fairly good old age. But we've lost a lot of stallions over the years that have been in the prime of their of their lives. As you say, Zamazan was a little bit old that. Uh, and of course that really brings you to your knees because those horses um, you know, you only get one of those horses every twenty or thirty years. 
Mm. And um, when you lose something like that, for a stunt to lose that, you probably never really recover. The season before, the New Zealand industry had lost another great, far younger, three legs. The loss was felt more keenly in season 89-90, as his daughter authored a season unlike any other before or since. She was, she was a pretty well-bred mare for Horlicks, um, and she was, of course, bred by the, the great Lowry family from, uh, uh, from uh, Hawke's Bay. Um, but she was in the hands of uh, one of the best trainers we've seen in New Zealand, of DJ, and assisted by uh, his son Paul, and written by his son Lance. So it was a good combination. If anyone could ever get a horse right, to do something on the day, it was that outfit. Yeah. So it was a funny thing because um, our way we started went up there and he won the lead up to the Japan Cup, the Fuji Stakes. This is Lance O'Sullivan, who rode Horlicks in Japan and had previously travelled to the country with the outstanding Waverley Star. He ran in the Japan Cup, he ran fifth, fifth. It was after, and that was, that was, uh, that must have been up after his, his um, battle with Bone Crusher. So we went up, he went up there, he won the Fuji Stakes, and he ran fifth in the Japan Cup, and Bone Crush became unwell, and he couldn't compete up there. Uh, the one thing about our Wadley Star, I know he finished uh, second in a BMW, but he was probably best at 2,000 metres, was probably his distance. So when we went up there with, um, with Horlicks, um, A, I think it was the first year that New Zealand have, didn't have the big entourage go up there because it, it had proved to be... Um, you know, we'd had a, lot, a few horses go up in the past and it looked, looked like the New Zealanders and the Australians were never going to win the race for those. They ended up winning that two years in a row with better loosen up following yeah. Horlicks. Yeah. And um, so I know when we went to go up there, there were a lot of problems with, with actually getting the papers all together. And it was only through my, my mother's, um, you know, she she persistence, I guess, that we were – that. Um, in fact, we got advised, look, this is really in the too hard basket. You know, let's just leave it. And she it was, she actually insisted, and it was only a lot, a lot of her doing. And, and uh, I know the guy in New Zealand who was in charge of it at the time, um, it became too difficult for him. So she actually took over. And um, so with all the necessary paperwork, she got the horse where she could get, he could, she could actually get there to compete in the race. So she went she went over to Melbourne. She was favourite for the Cox Plate. She was scratched on the morning of through an elevated temperature. Um, then she raced uh, in the McKinnon. Yep. And uh, where she broke the track record at Flemington, I think Vaux ran second. We know he was a pretty handy type. And then she travelled out. She travelled on from there on to Tokyo, where she broke the world record at a following start in the uh, Japan Cup. And uh, I mean, she, which I wouldn't say she blitzed them, but it was a tough performance. She was in front a long way out and fought on resolutely. So it was a great, great day for New Zealand when that, when that happened. We've had a few that have filled minus places in the Cup, uh, but it takes a good horse to win a Japan Cup, and she certainly was. Look, the track is very, very firm there. And look, look, I, I think, I think, you know, she drew a low, I think she drew barrier two, and she jumped well and, um, Look, and back in those days, there's the winner of the Arctic Triumph Breeders' Cup. Um, they were all there because it was an invite and it was such a big thing at the time. It was the richest race in the world. And look, the pace was hectic. And I, and I thought after we'd gone probably about 500 metres, I actually thought, to be honest, that I was too handy. 
with the sectionals that they were running. In fact, if you if you get the sectionals up on you up and have a look at them, um, you know, I think they as they were going, they were breaking track records on the way round. You know, yeah, it, was, it. it was just incredible. And the, the slowest part of the race was the last the last four hundred was certainly the slowest. They they got very very tired, but um, look, she was just one of those mares that you know she turned for home and there was a big you know she got a big split in the straight and they spread out across the track like they do there, and you know she was out on her feet, but. You know, she just never stopped. She was one of those mares. She just never, ever laid down. In fact, I, I, I cannot recall ever a race where she was passed in the straight. You know, once she, you know, she just made ground or held a position. She was extremely tough in a finish. But I think they ran their f- last 200 metres in 14 points something. Yeah, well, yeah. So that, they were cool. They, they, were, yeah, they were absolutely out of it. You know, we certainly didn't need to be going another 50 metres after the winning post. You know, it was I think what got me about about that race, and I've never, I've never actually experienced it before or after, was the crowd. You know, there was, was hundred and forty eight thousand people went through the turnstiles for that race, and um, you know, it, it's like it, it's like if you stand in front of a speaker and you, you've you know, in the base of a speaker is going, you could actually feel that on your body. You know, and I've never had it before, and I don't even know if it's possible or whether I imagined it. But you know, I certainly tell the story that you could feel the from the vibrations, what from the people's voices, because they they're certainly very vocal, and they were cheering for their local hero, won the derby, who was the second horse. Yes, and you know, I don't even know if that's possible, Angus, but I certainly was feeling something that particular day. That's extraordinary, and once again speaks to her constitution. I mean, what must that feel like for the horse, who was so much more sensitive than a human to, to that kind of stuff? I mean, she just must have been bomb-proof. I think, you know, you know, you look at her walking around the parade in that day in, in Tokyo, and she used to dance and get up on her toes, but she always performed in front of a big mm. crowd. That's, that was her, you know, if you went to a lowly-rated meet, um, you know, she'd often win, but she's certainly the bigger the crowd, the better the or the bigger performance she'd put up. And the love of a big crowd must have been genetic, because a bit over a decade later, Horlicks's son by Sir Tristram, Brew, won the main race at Australia's most well-attended race meeting, Melbourne Cup Day. Horlick's win in Japan had a halo effect on New Zealand bloodstock, at least for a little while. Yes, there was. In fact, um, we used to do a lot of uh, uh, marketing in Japan at that stage, and we used to sell quite a lot of horses each year out of you know, Trentham and then and in Karakari in the end. Um, but I guess we did lack getting the, the results that we thought we were entitled to. And the wane, the, the Japanese interest waned in New Zealand, and we've never re- really gone back to to push it along. But as you say, I mean, Japanese horses go all over the world, and they compete at the top level. And you could argue that they don't really have to go anywhere to buy good horses because they breed them themselves. And the mare herself managed to back it up at home. Back in those days, we had million-dollar races in New Zealand. I know we do now, but we had, I think, in the space of 89, 1991, I think we had six or seven which was a lot of money back then. I know it's still mm. a fair bit now, but it was certainly a lot of money back then. 
And uh, so she won the McKinnon where she broke the track record at Flemington. She broke the world record at her next start in Tokyo. She came back here to New Zealand and the next start was a million dollar 2000 meter race at Ellerslie. And uh, she was very flat going into the race. In fact, my father took her to a barrier trial. It was 2000 meter barrier trial. And she did hit it uh, pretty much flat out with a horse that, um, you know, was a sort of a second rate handicapper at the time. Um, so, you know, we, my father was really scratching his head about where to, how, just how well she was going. But anyhow, long story short, she lined up in the million dollar race and she didn't just win. She just beat them by a minute. And it was on a track that was probably a foot deep. You know, it was a heavy track, but she, she was just good in all conditions. It just didn't matter whether it was rock hard or, or, you know, a, a heavy track. She could just get out there and perform. On the track, Kiwi breads were thriving. Off it, the picture wasn't so rosy. Things were literally falling to pieces in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, because nearly every major stud farm in New Zealand, apart from Patrick, belonged to a public company, which were patently um, unfit to be running pure bloodstock-related entities. I still remember vividly because um, uh, Patrick had some tax partnerships and we had brought big mares from England, like set sail, half-sister to the the derby winner and everything. So um, it was was tough, but Patrick was very smart and still is to this day, but there wasn't too much exposure for the farm. Mm. So we had gold and ivory and a couple of others, but we didn't have any $10 million stallions like a few other farms did. And I think the same, you know, the same mistakes had been made across the Tasman as were, were, were made in Australia. And of course, <clears throat> thank God for bloody Tristram kept us going. And we hit, and he was getting a bit old in those days, so I won't tell you too many stories, but my God, he kept our head above water. In what we did, and I think a lot of the stud masters, I don't know whether Patrick was one of them, but I know a lot of the stud masters financially underwrote some of their syndicates. So that meant that they actually had to pay out in 1990 or 91 when they came to maturity those ventures. So Tristram was the difference. And, and of course, Patrick was a very, being Irish, mate, he's very shrewd with the money. Yeah. So, uh, and he was very, very selective. He brought some bloody good mares in those partnerships. So the first two partnerships were very good and paid their way. The last one was a bit wobbly, but um, he was very astute what mares he brought and how he managed them and how we sold. So there was never a chance that he, he was going to go bust or anything like that. And, mate, it was a, I still remember going to the, the Sydney sales with a couple of Satristram fillies and they made 400000 where the year before and everything else, it was eight to 900 or a million plus. Um, so we, we took horses all, we even took horses to the Melbourne sale to get some cash flow as well. Still remember it. Uh, you know, it was tough, but we got through it. But um, Sir Tristram held the fort, mate, I'm telling you. Big time. And when I think we cut a service fee back to more than 70,000 or something for that year and, and Patrick, Gave a few Aussies that had me as ear help out with GST and other bits and pieces or uh, things, but Sir Tristram kept us going. Sir Tristram would finish the season as champion sire. Tristan R and Dr Grace both won classics, and the handsome son of Nure of Mayor Lady Giselle claimed an Australian guineas. 
He was trained by Colin Hayes and took his place in the Cox Plate field of 1989 as a spring three-year-old, a race won by his stablemate, Almirad, a horse that had been on a journey of his own. Almirad was extraordinary. He was a good stayer here, but he couldn't go left-handed. Weirdly. Yeah. This is Angus Gold, racing manager for Shadwell, the owners of Almirad. Um, as a three-year-old, a man called Brian Rice rode in at Newbury one day in Myland, three furlong maiden or something. And he said he had both hands on the left rein, trying to get him round the bed. He was hanging so badly, Rice. When the cankle was injured, the race was brought out by Jake Hamdan. Um, I think John Dunlop was the trainer. And John Dunlop was a great, a great man for international travel and trying new things. And he bought this horse out. And on the Friday, the night before the race, he rang me and said, you're not going to believe this. This horse has got a leg. He's got a bit of a tender. And like you can imagine, I'd gone out for it. I'm so excited to be at Sydney. And anyway, that was the end of that dream. So, <laughs> but rather than go all the way back to England, thankfully, uh, they um, sent it down to Dad. You know, he would have been a best of national understanding in Ireland, in Ireland probably, you know, on his form in, in England. So that was the end of April. And he, he actually had Crotin in a very short spell, and we nursed him through. He was a champion. He hardly worked him. And he ended up in August. I rang up CS one day, and we were running through the horses. And I had my list in front of me. I remember going through with this horse and that horse. And then he said, oh, that other horse is going well. And I was looking at the list. I thought, well, I'd been through everything. And I said, well, what, what horse is that? And he said, no, that Tommy horse you sent out that broke down. And I said, well, what do you think he's going well? He's got a leg. And he went, no, no, I've just got him in light work, and he's going all right. And this was literally August, and he'd broken down in April. I mean, wow. As I, was, I was always told that uh, a bit of a leg is like a little bit pregnant. Uh, you know, if you, you can't have it one way or the other. It's so, um, anyway, you know, it's in the history books what he managed to achieve with that horse. They put a one-eyed blinker on him to stop him hanging. Our domestic weight rate talents were probably at their all-time best. So, you know, the depth was around. And he, he was a European horse before everyone really gave them credit how superior at the upper level they are. He won the Cox Plate, but in winning the Cox Plate, he injured the tendon again and unfortunately he had to be retired. But one of the things was I was sure he used to hang a little bit because he was feeling that tendon. Um, and then we put the one-eye blinker on him, and he tended to go straight. And it turned him, you know, like he was racing superimposed and beating him, and a lot of good horses. He's a forgotten horse when people talk about top horses. But C.S. Hayes had shocked the racing world the night before Almirad's Cox Plate triumph announcing he would be leaving the training ranks at the end of the season and handing over to his son, David. He looked, Dad put a lot of thought into it, but um, I was his uh, probably training partner before it was official, uh, but he's, uh, he's AT, I suppose, you describe it. And Dad was unfortunately unwell, otherwise he would have kept training for years and years, but he just was finding it too hard with his heart condition. So he decided to go out in style and put a bit of thought into it. And he announced his retirement on the eve of the Cox Plate, which he thought he could win, and he did, which was a huge thrill. And um, and then I stepped in the season after 
and I was my first group one winner was the Cox Plate. So, uh, uh, but he handed me this wonderful team of horses of Evolution Up and the Bill and Planet Ruler, and that, you know, they were the superstars everywhere. Almorad may not have been the most commercial of options, but it was hoped that at least the Beal could be. After all, he was gorgeous. He was a fail stopper, um, for sure, uh, uh, and, and an outstanding individual. The opposite to better loosen up, you, you, take, you take the best-looking horse in Australia to the race of one week and the plainest the next, but they still both won. They did it, and they did it in different ways. But he hated wet tracks, and, and it still was same in Sydney. He brought his copybook in Sydney, on the week, like he won the Australian Guineas like a champion, and he went to Sydney for for the three world series, and we just kept getting wet track after wet track like they're getting this year, and he didn't like it. And then when when he came back with me, it was the top, I'd run better loosen up one week, and I would run the Bill the next week, and they were winning the McKinnon and the, the Thamesy and the, all the lead up races to the Cox Plate, and he unfortunately he did a century so badly he had to retire. I think after the Underwood. Surprisingly, studmasters weren't bowling Shadwell over with requests. There was really only two suitors, and one was his trainer. He was actually on the market for quite a long time, Zabil. Um, I think probably the fact that he'd, only, he'd won an Australian Guineas, but he hadn't flattered as a, I mean, he was a good racehorse, but he wasn't a champion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think where Zabil had it over everything of that era. He had such a good pedigree. We sold him as a yearly. When I was working for John Massaro, we owned Raoro. We sold Zabil as a yearly. Um, at the first Caracas sales was when Caracas opened. And I remember him as a yearly. It was a gorgeous-looking horse, 650000 he made. Every time he came out of the box, he behaved like a bad boy. He had his old fellow out. He was roaring and screaming. And Peter Keating was our stone manager in Rawa at the time. He said, put that bloody colt back in the box. It was the funniest thing. But, I mean, a good judge bought him. A very good trainer trained him in Colin Hayes. And, you know, Patrick, in, a, in that uncanny way that he had a picking stone in, bought him back. Uh, look, I, I, he had the credentials to be a good type, but who could have predicted how good he turned out? Like, he... Yeah. You know, he's, he's one of the best of a generation, along with Daniel, probably, that I've seen. On the next annuals. I was on a mission to internationalise Australian bloodstock, particularly Arrowfield's bloodstock. I don't say we're to blame, but... <laughs> uh, you sell it the sound of music and you buy the sound of cannons. He was a dream just by a, they didn't play on a jet, on a jet board so much, but in, but in life, 